Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. I'm always looking to help the Next Level Soul audience take their soul to the next level. And I've been able to partner with Mind Valley to present you guys with a ton of free master classes between 60 and 90 minutes covering mind, body, soul, relationships, and conscious entrepreneurship. Some of these master classes are taught by spiritual masters, relationship experts, best selling authors, legends in the personal growth and spirituality space, and so much more. So if you want to sign up for any of our free mind, body, and soul masterclasses, just head over to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash free. Now, I know that many of you suffer from pain, from aches, from being overweight, uh, so many different ailments and diseases that we're all trying to figure out how to fix. Well, today's guest is going to help us a little bit on that journey. We have on the show today Dr. William Davis, the best-selling author of Wheat Belly and his new book, Super Gut. Now, Dr. Davis and I have a very frank and raw conversation about humanity's health, what we're eating, and what is hurting us when we eat it. And I really hope that this conversation helps you guys down a more pain-free and healthy life. So let's dive in. I'd like to welcome to the show, Dr. William Davis. How are you doing, Dr. William? Hi, Alex. Thanks How are for the you? invitation. I'm great. You, thank you so much for coming on the show. I am, I am excited to talk to you today because I know many of us love uh, bread and, <laughs> and love wheat and wheat products. And I, you know, I wanted to kind of get into the science a little bit of what it does to us and what's going on. And you are definitely the foremost expert on that. And we're also going to be talking about your new book, The Super Gut, which I have also recently discovered the power of the gut and in that and the focus of, of, of having a healthy flora and prebiotic, probiotic, postbiotic, all that kind of stuff um, that can help with. And I, I, it's really changed my life. We'll talk about Super Gut in a little bit. But first, what made you decide to write your best-selling book, Wheat Belly? It all started oddly, Alex, with my effort to put a stop to coronary disease. So what I was doing this is going back now, 25, 30 years. I worked in the cath lab, aborting heart attacks, putting stents in, doing angioplasty, eczema, laser, balloon, all that stuff. Yeah. And then my mom in New Jersey, where I grew up, uh, died of sudden cardiac death just about four months after her two-vessel oh, coronary angioplasty. Well, Alex, so I, she died of the disease that I managed every day. And so it was a vivid illustration to me just how silly it was, how fruitless, how dangerous it was to try to manage a disease like coronary disease in a cath lab. So I, I wanted to find a way to help people like my mom identify trouble, you know, two years, five years, 10 years before it became a real threat. And then maybe find some way of taking action. So 
that was when I brought uh, the first CT heart scanner to Wisconsin, one of the first in the Midwest, very early days, 25 years ago or so. And we started scanning people left and right. What this device does, and it's still, it, it's become only now, Alex, only now, 25 years later, it's becoming very popular. <laughs> When I first did it, because always trying to make money, which is so ridiculous. We're trying to screen people for early heart disease. And these are people like you and me. We're going about our business, going to work, going to school, going for a job, going for a bike ride, feeling fine. These are not people in the ER with chest pain, that kind of this, these are asymptomatic everyday people. When you look for hidden coronary disease, and we score it by something called a coronary calcium score, only because when you have atherosclerotic plaque. 20% of the volume, this is a fairly standard rule, 20% of the volume is occupied by calcium. We can use that, measure the calcium, it's easy to do, and we can calculate how much plaque you have. And so normal is zero, no plaque at all. Any number above zero is increasingly uh, more plaque. And so people come through, like a business guy come through, 52 years old, he says, oh, you know, my, my dad had a heart attack at age 59. Am I, is that my future? I'm 52. He has a scan. His score is, let's say, 500. But he, he freaks out, of course. Uh, if he does nothing, we help publish these data. If, if you did nothing, which, of course, is stupid, uh, your score goes up 25% per year. So 25 years ago, people said, well, what should I do? Well, it's at baby aspirin, high-dose statin drug like Lipitor 40 milligrams, low-fat diet, low-saturated fat diet, exercise program, maybe some other things like beta blockers, et cetera. And then we help publish these data. How fast does a score go up now? 25% per year has zero impact on this measure, even though my colleagues, Alex, to this day, uh, call it optimal medical therapy. It's like putting sugar in your gas tank and call it optimal fuel. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But that's the best they have. The best they have hardly does anything at all. Well, people are freaking out, right? So uh, unfortunately, a lot of my colleagues took advantage of this. They still do to this day. Oh, you need the real test, a heart catheterization, maybe some preventive stents or bypass, which is malpractice. But Alex, it's done every day. Preventive stents. Done all the time. Done all the time. Oh. Even though the science is clear, there's no benefit. If if you take someone like you and me, I say, oh, you got a blockage. We put a stent in. Well, I did you no favors because it does not uh, reduce your future heart attack or other heart problems. So that's done because it pays so well. Right. Well, uh, this makes me angry. I tried to find new ways. Now, it took some time, zigzagging, trial and error. But it led to some very important uh, lessons, like the importance of vitamin D. When, when I added vitamin D, and this is years ago, was the first time I saw coronary calcium scores, rather than go up 25% per year, drop. I mean, plummet. At first, I didn't believe it. I went back to the scans to compare them pre-post. Yeah. Not only had the calcium part of the plaque shrunk, you can kind of see some of the contours of the other softer elements. They shrunk also. So, Wow. But I also look for other ways to give people advantages. And one of the things I did was reject this ridiculous idea that cholesterol causes heart disease and reducing cholesterol reduces your risk of heart disease. There's a germ of truth in it, but it's mostly garbage. Mm. It's outdated. It's, it should have been abandoned years ago. There's a better class of tests. It's called lipoprotein testing, not cholesterol as an indirect gauge of those particles, lipoproteins, actually looking at the lipoproteins themselves, their number volume, their, their shape, their size. You can do this. And I did it. 
And it became clear that virtually everybody with coronary disease had an excess of small LDL particles, not LDL cholesterol, the indirect measure, the actual particles, small LDL particles. Well, back then, I want to ask, well, what causes that? And the science was clear. Even 20-some years ago, uh, science out of University of California, Berkeley, Hopkins, some out of University of Texas, and grains and sugars, wheat grains and sugars, the only common foods that cause small. Uh, so I asked my are these patients, I said, hey, let's try it. You know, you're, you're, statin drugs don't do anything. Aspirin does, hardly does anything. Let's try this. They do it. Small LDL particles often start at like 1,800 or 2,400 nanomoles per liter particle count per volume. They go wheat grain sugar-free, drops to zero or some other very low number. It's not just a, it's a, it's a dramatic improvement, often eradication. But this is when people started coming back and they'd say, I, I don't understand. Why did I lose 73 pounds? Why did my blood sugar drop so much? I had to stop the metformin, the insulin, and my hemoglobin A1C dropped from 12.7%, that long-term measure of blood sugar. It's now down to 5.3%. I'm no longer a diabetic. Why did I have to stop my three blood pressure medicines? I was so lightheaded. Why is my ulcerative colitis so much better? I'm off the biologic injection that cost me $4,000 out of pocket every month. (laughs) In other words, I started seeing... I had stumbled, Alex. I didn't do it because I thought it would cure all human disease. <laughs> I did it because I just wanted to eradicate small LDL particles and people who had coronary calcium scores and were scared for their future. So I have to ask you a question. Why is it that the medical establishment is so is so uneducated in nutrition? I hear, I hear that in medical school, they barely get a two or three hour lecture on nutrition when um, please for, remind me the doctor, the, 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 the Greek who created medicine. Um, oh, Hippocrates? Yes. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. He literally said, he literally said um, uh, that the, the, the pharmacy is in the food or the healing is in food or medicine is food. Let food be thy medicine. Thank you. That's what that. Thank you. Thank you so much. So articulately saying whatever I was stumbling across. Um, but yeah, but that so it was at the beginning and I know there's profit. I know there's pharmaceutical companies. I know there's money. You just said like the stents and things like that. I know it's, you know, health for business. But even then, I'm assuming most doctors get into this business not to just make money. And I know many I have a lot of doctors in my family. It is not as what it used to be. In the 70s and 80s, you can make a really good living as a doctor. Now you've got to hustle hard, fight with insurance companies. So it's not even about the money anymore. But when I talk to my doctor relatives and I go, do you guys not understand about nutrition? Do you not understand about this? And do you understand about vitamin therapy? Do you know like, oh, that's all kind of like magical hoo-ha kind of stuff. Why is that, in your opinion, you being a doctor? You know, as you point out, there's there's a list of reasons: external pressures from health insurers. Um, the you know when I we discharge a patient, say from the hospital after a heart attack, the hospital actually runs through a checklist of drugs that the patient they insist are on: baby aspirin, beta blocker, ACE inhibitor, statin drug, and on and on. In other words, the practice is almost dictated by the by big pharma. Practices of big pharma to a large degree. Big pharma has had its hand reached into so many areas of, uh, of human behavior, health uh, that 
the doctors are also guilty of that. They've allowed big pharma to control their behavior. It is hard to fight big pharma. They are a gargantuan business with deep reach into Congress, into the Senate. So they set the pace for a lot of things. There's also, unfortunately, this kind of willful ignorance. If I do something in medicine, it pays me $3,000 every time I do it, like inject an eye with a certain drug or implant three stents or replace a knee, something like that. And then I find out there's some nutritional or natural means of doing something similar. It's not as harmful nor expensive. I kind of ignore it. And so this is willful ignorance. So they'll say things like, oh, Alex, did you consult Dr. Google again? (laughs) Or be completely unaware. And even, you know, vitamin D that we were talking about is really a spectacularly effective nutrient that we are supposed to get from sun exposure. But we live indoors, wear clothes over a lot of surface area. And many of us lose the capacity of active vitamin D as we get older. But it's so powerful. You think the doctors would be experts in managing your vitamin D. They're not. They're rank amateurs at best. They mismanage it all the time. So there's this willful ignorance. They they look at nutrients and nutrition as says, ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Everything in moderation, move more, eat, eat less, all the stupid things they say that do not work. Uh, but you know what? It's my view. All doctors should be experts in nutrition, in nutrients, and the microbiome. Because if if they were first schooled in that stuff. And then everything else comes second, joint replacement, coronary stents, carotid endarterectomy, et cetera. The world would be a hugely healthier place. And the healthcare bill, Alex, would be cut from $3 trillion a year to some much smaller number. But there's not enough profit in that. And profit meaning the transfer of wealth from people like you and me into the pockets of somewhat the doctors, healthcare systems, big pharma and the medical device industry. Yeah. And, 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 you know, a lot of people, when I talk about this stuff, I'm not against modern medicine. If I get shot, don't rub a leaf on me. (laughs) Like there's not a natural cure for being shot. You know, there's, if there's an emergency, absolutely. But long-term care is where I see there is obviously some benefit depending, but there seems to always be some sort of either natural way, or at least some other way that you can work something out to see if it, help because I've just been, I've been around a long time. I've talked to a lot of different health professionals over the, over the course, modern medicine and also, you know, herbal vitamin therapy, vitamin therapy. I've, I've dug into vitamin therapy a whole lot. I mean, vitamin D, we are all pretty much deficient in vitamin D unless you're taking a 5,000 IBU supplement every day. I just did my blood work and they're like, your vitamin D is really low. And it's such an important vitamin to have in your life. Correct. Oh, absolutely. Top of the list. It's like one of the most important things. People are like, oh, vitamin C, vitamin C. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. Vitamin C is water soluble and it'll go right through you. And it's it's great and you need it. But vitamin D is one of those things that we don't get very easily from from our foods and and things like that. And I've been vegetarian, vegan for about 10 years. And people always ask, well, how are you going to get your vitamin B12? And I'm like, from the algae that, uh, or where are you going to get the omega? from the algae that your fish are eating, that you're taking the fish oils from. I'm killing the middleman out and just taking, you know, getting. So there's always, if you educate yourself a little bit here and there, you can really find ways to try to take the best care of yourself as possible. And that's why I was so drawn to your work as well. 
Now, do you, do you, I, I want to talk a little bit about wheat. What is the inflama, um, inflammatory part of wheat in your body? Because infl, infl, inflammation is essentially the, the cause of most diseases in the, in the world. Am I, is that a fair, fair statement? Yeah, it's a big player. Inflammation is a big player in a lot of diseases from obesity to cancer to neurodegenerative disorders. A absolutely, Alex. Well, there's a number of things. Uh, one of the things that farmers and agribusiness scientists did, so that, not that they're evil, and they did this for their own purposes, like increased yield per acre or resistance to pests like insects and, and mold. So one of the things they did was there are two components in in wheat that are pest resistant. And that is a protein called wheat germaglutinin and another one called phytates. Well, wheat germaglutinin uh, is very good at pest resistance. So farmers chose strains of wheat that were enriched in both wheat germaglutinin and phytates, not recognizing that wheat germaglutinin is a very potent bowel toxin to humans, thereby causes intestinal inflammation. <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> And phytates are, uh, bind all positively charged minerals like magnesium, manganese, calcium, iron, and zinc, and you poop it out. Now, though, that's not necessarily inflammatory, but the wheat germagglutin is very inflammatory. So that's one thing. Another thing is the gliadin protein. People say gluten, but it's really the gliadin protein within wheat that's been dramatically changed, and its inflammatory properties have been uh, increased. So gliadin works in two major ways. One is it's itself a, a bowel toxin that opens the barrier, the intestinal, so-called intestinal leakiness. You can actually measure this. You can actually measure before and after consumption of wheat, something called zonulin, which is a protein that goes up in your bloodstream when you consume the gliadin protein of wheat because it opens the barriers between intestinal cells. So when that happens, you increase body-wide inflammation. Uh, there's also amylopectin A. In wheat, amylopectin A is the unique carbohydrate of wheat that is digested to sugar faster than table sugar. And so when you eat, let's say, two slices of whole wheat bread, your blood sugar goes up higher than it would with tea six teaspoons of table sugar. So every time you have a sandwich or a bagel or pancakes or pasta, you have a big rise in blood sugar. Well, that rise in blood sugar is followed by a rise in insulin. That's the process that leads to insulin resistance. And that coupled with inflammation goes to a very nasty duo because they underlie cancers, coronary disease, hypertension, dementia, on and on, many, many diseases. And it also, that rise in blood sugar and insulin grows visceral fat. That's the fat around your waist and also encircles organs. And that's inflammatory fat. And so if you biopsy visceral fat, it look like pus. It's full of uh, neutrophils or white blood cells. And visceral fat is known to release numerous inflammation mediators, proteins like interleukin-6, interleukin-1-beta, PNF-alpha. And so uh, wheat and grains are perfectly crafted to cause inflammation and insulin resistance and weight gain. And so they're, hor they're, they're horrible foods, yet they are the basis for all dietary guidelines and dietary advice. So what foods should we be eliminating? So this is all foods, in my view, made with wheat, especially modern wheat. So this uh, modern wheat is something very different also. I haven't mentioned that. So traditional wheat would be a four and a half foot, five foot tall plant that we all recognize from 
when we were kids. But modern wheat is now an 18-inch tall, so-called semi-dwarf strain. And it's short, real thick stalk, real thick seeds. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. The real long seed head. So they dramatically changed the plant for increased yield, not for evil purpose. Uh, but when you change something so dramatically, you change the effects on humans who consume it, potentially. And they, what they did was amplify a lot of the adverse effects, which are gluten, phytates, and, and the gliadin, some other factors also. And so anything made of wheat, now we don't think of uh, grasses this way. That's what grains are. They're seeds of grasses, but they're very promiscuous and they breed with each other and share genetics. So rye started out as a weed in wheat fields, wild wheat fields. And so rye over the centuries acquired a lot of the genetics of wheat. So even though they taste and smell differently, different, uh, the genetics are almost identical. Likewise, barley overlaps a lot. Corn, like the zein protein of corn, is a lot like the gliadin protein. By the way, Alex, so all those people with celiac disease told to eat gluten-free foods, where the primary ingredient is often cornstarch. Mm-hmm. Cornstarch contaminated by the zein protein. So it's an instance where, in the ignorance and diet by my colleagues, the gastroenterologist says, make sure you eat gluten-free foods, not recognizing that many of them will have occurrences of their celiac disease from gluten-free foods and gluten-free foods are just plain awful because they raise blood sugar and insulin sky high because they're made of cornstarch, rice starch, tapioca starch, potato flour, just horrible replacements. But once again, industry comes to your rescue to make money. So what bread, is there a bread that you can eat out of, out of something else? Is it like out of uh, spelt or like all these other kind of grains? Is there anything else that we could eat if you love bread? <laughs> oh. <laughs> you're killing, you're killing me, doc. Doc, you're killing me. Look, we all, everyone listening is like, no, like you, you mean no bread. I'm like, I, I get it. Bread is so comfortable. It is tasty. You want to eat it as much as you can. Is there, can we make oat bread? Can we like, is there some other kind of bread that we can consume? First of all, Alex, I know of no way to make the seeds of grasses safe for human consumption, whether we call it modern semi-dwarf wheat or spelt from the middle ages or einkorn wheat from pre-biblical times, the first wild wheat that humans first consumed or uh, emmer wheat of the Bible. Uh, no matter what you do, it has adverse effects. Modern wheat just has been amplified in its adverse effects. So here's a question. What happened to the first humans 12,000 years ago in the Middle East when they first figured out how to consume wild wheat? That was einkorn wheat, mm-hmm. which, by the way, is a 14-chromosome plant. To, to illustrate this, how far things have drifted, modern wheat is a 42-chromosome plant. You know, So... Uh, in other words, humans have 46 chromosomes. If you're, if you're a six foot seven man, you have 46 chromosomes. If you're a five foot two woman, you have 46 chromosomes. If you're from Mongolia, you have 46 chromosomes. If you're from Canada, 46 chromosomes. But forerunner of, uh, of all wheat, 14 chromosome einkorn, modern triticmestibum wheat, 42 chromosomes. This is how far things have drifted off. But despite all that, when humans first consumed wild einkorn wheat, what happened to those people? Well, there was an explosion in tooth decay. Remarkably, Alex, before people ate grains, 
There was almost no such thing as tooth decay. It was very uncommon. One to 3% of all teeth recovered prior to grains showed evidence of tooth decay, rot, abscess formation, or misalignment of teeth. When grains were added, 16 to 49% of all teeth showed rot, abscess formation, misalignment. In other words, there was an explosion in tooth decay. Now, the, the lack of tooth decay, by the way, was at a time when there was no such thing as dental floss, fluoridated toothpaste, dentists, orthodontists, and yet there was almost no tooth decay, which makes sense. If people lived, and they did, by the way, this fiction of, oh, people only lived 23 years. No, they lived often to 50, 60, 70 years old, but there was a lot of childhood mortality that skewed the uh, lifespan of people. But people would live to 55, 67, whatever, with full mouths of teeth. Well, you know, if you're eating meats and tough things, nuts and hard fruit, you need teeth. And if you didn't have teeth, you're going to die because <laughs> you didn't have a blender back then. Mm-hmm. And so uh, 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 there was an explosion in tooth decay. There was a doubling of knee arthritis with consumption of grains, ancient grains. And then there was appearance of multiple deficiencies, but especially of iron. That, by the way, has persisted. You'll see, by the way, lots of people with iron deficiency nowadays, unresponsive to iron, iron injections. Uh, some people even get blood transfusions because their hemoglobin is so low that they're breathless and tired and cold all the time. These are mostly females, oddly. They go off grains and the phytates that bind iron and their uh, anemia reverses within two weeks. So no, so what you're saying is no grains of any kind that includes oats, that includes quinoa, that includes all of those kind of grains. None of them we can can really ingest. Well, so this includes wheat, rye, spelt, all different forms of wheat, einkorn, emmer. Uh, it includes corn, uh, oatmeal, rice, millet, sorghum. These are all seeds of grasses. So quinoa is unrelated, something different. Um, so uh, there's no way to take a seed of a grass. So, you know, if, if heaven forbid you and your family were starving, hadn't eaten anything in two weeks, and you spy a field of wild wheat, would you say to your family, hallelujah, we're going to eat like kings tonight? <laughs> no. So it is testimony to the cleverness of humans that we figured out 12,000 years ago how to consume seeds of grasses. We first, you have to isolate the seed out of the husk, yeah, that they grind it with stones back then and then heated it in water in a stone bowl and made a porridge. It wasn't made until many thousands of years later, late, later that the Egyptians figured out how to make beer and then make leavened bread with the beer. That took many thousands of years. But it is, it is clever. But they did not know they were trading calories for long-term uh, degradation of health. And now modern agribusiness, all they did was amplify all the problematic issues with with grains, including, by the way, back to where we started, heart disease. So uh, small LDL particles are triggered to an extreme degree by the amylopectin A of wheat and grains. You'll see that. Grain eating, small LDL particles, 2,400. No grains, zero. It's a dramatic effect. How about, so, so, and also rice, like white rice, brown rice? Yeah, rice is mostly sugar, starch, like 90%. So that it's got that problem. Even brown? Even brown rice? Even brown is mostly starch. Okay. But it has some other issues. It does have a little bit of wheat germaglutinin. It's in rice, but it's it's identical to what's in, in wheat. So it's called wheat germaglutinin. It's not as much as in wheat, 
but it's that potent bowel toxin. If I give a milligram, Alex, of wheat germaglutinin, I don't know if a milligram is a speck to a rat, laboratory rat, it denudes the entire GI tract. The little hairs are ripped off just by that little bit. And the average American, he eats healthy whole grains, gets about 18 to 19 milligrams of wheat germaglutinin. It's less in rice, though. Uh, but rice has also been identified very reluctantly, by the way, by the USDA. Because they, you know, the USDA is not in the business of supporting consumer health; they're in the business of, of supporting agribusiness health. Mm-hmm. And of course, what they were reluctant to report was that our, uh, rice is a natural concentrator. So we can't blame agribusiness on this one. Rice is a natural concentrator of arsenic, and so uh, it's not quite clear just how big a deal this is. Though it is clear, such products as rice milk in children is very dangerous. Uh, so uh, there have been episodes of, uh, chronic, of acute toxicity in parts of the world like Bangladesh, where there's also arsenic in the water. And they eat a lot of rice. It's not quite clear, though. No one's done these studies yet. Is arsenic consumption via rice, let's say, a chronic toxin that leads to such things as, let's say, gastrointestinal cancers? So that's not been sorted out yet. So but it's back to this idea, Alex, that there's just no way you can shake and kick <laughs> grains. There's no way to make them healthy. So, so even because um, I've read in, in some um, some research that rice and beans combined, there is a balance there that is different if you just ate the rice by itself. I'm sure you're you're right, and I'm sure there's I'm sure you're going to tell me, yeah, maybe, but you're still eating rice, and it's not canceling it out. But there is there are there are societies throughout the world that eat rice and beans. You know, I'm Cuban, so I was raised on rice and beans. So it's difficult for me to pull out and beans. And I'm assuming beans are okay at this point. Black beans. In fact, I think beans are fabulous. They're a great okay. source of uh, nutrients for your microbiome. Great. Sorry. So beans. And then, so again, with everything we're saying is like, you know, if you, if you cut out all of this stuff, We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Uh, Yes, it's ideal not to have this stuff. We we all can't be Tom Brady, who hasn't had a grain of sugar in 30 years. And that's why he's just unretired at 44 to go back into the NFL, because he is he is definitely the exception to the rule. Um, But at a certain point, like, yeah, you should watch these things, but you can't, you know, when you're out in the world, if you want to have a slice of pizza, have a slice of pizza, if you want to have this or that, but just keep things in not moderation, but just be aware of what you're eating and the effects that it has on you. So if you have one piece of bread once a week or once a month or whatever, how much damage is it really going to do over the long haul if everything else is doing well? I'm trying. I'm. I'm really grasping at straws for the audience here, uh, Doc. So I'm just trying to see if, if there's anything somewhere, some hope for the audience. <laughs> well, as you as you know, Alex, everybody have, has to make their own decision, appropriate for their own beliefs, ambitions, sure. tolerances, etc. But several things to factor into your thinking. Mm-hmm. One is that small LDL particle effect. So one of the reasons why small LDL particles are so nasty is if you eat, let's say, a bagel that contains the amylopectin A that triggers formation of small LDL particles. The small LDL particle, unlike the large LDL particle, the large LDL particle your liver recognizes and clears out of your bloodstream very rapidly, less than 24 hours. The small LDL particles, not just smaller, its surface 
ton formation is different and the liver doesn't recognize it. It's very poorly recognized. There's something called an apoprotein B that's poorly recognized because its surface shape has changed. So the liver does not clear it and it circulates for five to seven days. So one bagel, one slice of pizza, whatever, cardiovascular risk for about a week, meaning one indulgence per week is 52 weeks per year, increased cardiovascular risks. It's that bad. The small LDL particle is poorly recognized, lasts longer, more adherent to the arterial wall, more likely to become oxidized, more likely to become glycated, modified by sugar, more likely to gain entry into the wall of the artery and promote inflammation. So the small LDL particle is a perfect craft little bastard to get into your arteries. And so that's just one slice of pizza a week. Another thing to be aware of is that gliadin protein I mentioned. So uh, as I mentioned, humans just don't have the digestive equipment to break down a lot of the components of wheat and grains. And that's true of the gliadin protein. The best we can do So if you eat an egg or other protein source, let's say the proteins and legumes, you break them down to single amino acid. That's how it's supposed to be. So you can convert them to muscle and tissue, et cetera. The gliadin protein of wheat is often undigestible or broken down into peptides or fragments, four or five amino acids long. And these act as opioids on the human brain. And it can have a variety of effects, but the most common effect is appetite stimulation. It varies. It varies from a very soft effect to an overwhelming crippling effect. The worst would be people with bulimia and binge eating disorder. And these people have 24 hour a day food obsessions from glide and drive opioid peptides. And so uh, I tell you that because sometimes it's like, oh, I've been grain free for a month, but I went to an office party and they were serving hors d'oeuvres. I thought, what the hell? One, one's not going to hurt. Maybe two. That's it. I'll exercise more tomorrow, <laughs> right? Or something mm-hmm. like that. But what happens is re-exposure, it reignites the appetite. I call it the, I ate one cookie and gained 30 pounds effect. (laughs) No one gains 30 pounds from a cookie, but it sets in motion that appetite stimulation. I've seen too many people just from an occasional indulgence regain 20, 30 pounds in a month because they can't, they really have a hard time turning it off. That's among the effects why, and there's a third effect that's real common. And that is, so a lot of us who go grain-free and get rid of a whole bunch of a long list of health conditions upon re-exposure, get quite sick. So many of us have uh, bloating, diarrhea. Uh, men get angry. Ladies get panic attacks or anxiety. Some get suicidal thoughts. Appetite stimulation, of course. Um, uh, if you had a skin rash that went away with grain elimination, it comes back. If you had an autoimmune condition that receded with grain elimination, it comes back for months. So one good example was uh, and when I was doing this in the early days, I had a guy with rheumatoid arthritis. He came to me for coronary disease. So I gave him all this stuff. Let's get rid of wheat and grains because you have small LDL particles. We're going to give you vitamin D, fish oil, blah, blah, blah. He does all these things. He says, you know, my, my rheumatoid arthritis is, is, is 70% better, a little longer. It's almost gone. I'm almost off all my medication except for one. Then he says to me, but I'm going to Germany and I'll be damned. I'm having pumpernickel. I said, all right. He does it. He said, within minutes, all the pain, swelling, and crippling uh, disfigurement came back. He had to go back on all the drugs. It took him six months to get back off the drugs. So it's, it's an extreme example, but re-exposure also. Once you're free of these things and you enjoy magnificent health and you go back, it, you can get quite ill. 
I, I tell you, I, I've done a couple of juice cleanses in my day. And when you do a juice cleanse, it completely resets your system. It is, I've gone two, three days. I've even gone a couple of weeks with just juices, fresh juices, and you lose your taste for bread, for rice, for all of that stuff. One of the reasons I became vegan vegetarian is because I had a juice cleanse and I just like, I don't really want this stuff anymore. <laughs> and I just started to, to do more and more research on it. And that's why when I went down that road, um, I, there's another thing in regards to gluten that, excuse me, not gluten, but um, with the gluten, pe- the, the thing you said, the gluten thing, wheat gluten. The gliden. Thank you. The gliden. Um, that it triggers autoimmune disease. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that is one of the biggest, one of the rising diseases we have. Yeah. So the science is quite clear from Dr. Alessio Fasano. He worked this out while at University of Maryland, now at Harvard. And he showed that the gliadin protein of wheat is very unique in that it actually pries apart the barrier between intestinal cells. And accordingly, that's why you get that rise in that zonulin, the oddly named zonulin protein. Another name for zonulin is haptoglobin 2. And so it actually opens the barriers and allows things to get into your bloodstream and lymph. It could be breakdown products of, of food. It could be breakdown products of bacteria. And these are all inflammatory and can trigger an autoimmune response, set in motion an autoimmune, autoimmune response. This is well worked out with type 1 diabetes in children, rheumatoid arthritis, and several others. What is not clear of the 100 or so autoimmune diseases, how many can we blame on wheat? That has not been fully cataloged, but it's, the arrows are pointing towards the majority. So it's, it's shocking, Alex, to people like me who, you know, hear the USDA and U.S. Department of Health and Human Services telling people, eat more healthy whole grain. It's a centerpiece of your health. A thing we know underlies type 2 diabetes, autoimmune disease, type 1 diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, and numerous other forms of, of uh, conditions, including other autoimmune conditions. So that, now it's been amplified. This, I guess segues into the, into the super gut conversation. Mm-hmm. The, the other thing that really increases intestinal permeability is overgrowth of unhealthy microbes. So modern people, Alex, unfortunately have done a number on our microbiomes. We have eradicated hundreds of beneficial species. These are species that were doing good things for us. And just, so, like, and just to interrupt you for a second, just so everybody understands what microbiome, can you explain what that is? Like the flora and the, it's basically the gut, essentially the stuff in the gut. Yeah. So, so actually all the organs of the body, skin, eyes, mouth, airways, uterus, prostate, as well as the GI tract contain trillions of microbes and all the things we've been exposed to as modern people, antibiotics, you know, most of us have taken 30 courses of antibiotics by age 40. Uh, herbicide, pesticide residues in food, air and water. Uh, glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in Roundup, is also a very potent antibiotic. Emulsifying agents and other additives in common foods like ice cream and salad dressing screw up your microbiome. Synthetic sweeteners, drugs like anti-inflammatory drugs. Uh, stomach acid blocking drugs, statin cholesterol drugs, birth control pills. I mean, on and on, common drugs all disrupt the microbiome. And so modern people, as a rule, have introduced massive disruption of their intestinal microbiomes in particular, because that's when it has the biggest implications for health. And t- two general um, things have happened. One, we've lost important species that did important things for us. 
And two, in their place, unhealthy microbes, many of them stool microbes, have proliferated and then ascended up into the small bowel, the 24 feet of small bowel, the ilium, jejunum, duodenum, stomach, comprising 30 feet. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Alex, 30 feet of unhealthy microbes. And, but, you know, microbes don't live for decades. They live for minutes to hours. And so there's rapid turnover, trillions of microbes. When they die, some of their breakdown products enter the bloodstream. That's a very important uh, fact that was finally validated by a Belgian group in 2007. It's called endotoxemia. But it tells us once and for all how microbes in the GI tract can be experienced as depression in the brain or dementia or Parkinson's disease or rosacea or psoriasis in the skin or as fibromyalgia or restless leg syndrome in the limbs. In other words, uh, microbes in the GI tract can be experienced as diseases or conditions in virtually every other organ of the body, from coronary disease to atrial fibrillation to depression to fibromyalgia to restless leg syndrome to lupus to rheumatoid. <laughs> so all this has to be re-examined in light of the contribution of the microbiome. So, so I've heard the term lectins. What are lectins? So lectins are compounds in plants uh, of all sorts. They're, they're fairly ubiquitous, and uh, they can be toxic to humans if they're allowed to gain entry to the bloodstream. They can be toxic to the GI tract, but I think it's been overblown. One of the problems we have is when you have the overproliferation of unhealthy microbes. These are microbes like E. coli, salmonella, that you might recognize also as the microbes of food poisoning. Because the kid at the burger joint flipping your burgers didn't wash his hands after going number two. And so these are fecal microbes. So proliferation of those fecal microbes. So there's an increase in intestinal permeability, an increase in intestinal inflammation, and it makes you sensitive to things. It could be lectins. It could be nightshades like eggplants and tomatoes. It could be FODMAPs, foods with fibers and sugars. It could be histamine-containing foods. It could be sorbitol, fructose. In other words, all these people with apparent intolerances to some component of foods, you've seen this, oh, I only can eat these five foods, right? right. Or I can't eat this list of 43 foods. That's The problem is not the food. Nothing wrong with the food. There's something wrong with your microbiome that allowed these uh, for you to experience these food intolerances. By the way, there's a new device that your listeners might, your viewers might want to know about. It's called the Air Device, A-I-R-E, from a company called Food Marble. And I have no relationship with them, mm-hmm. though I know the inventor now, some of the people, he's my friend now, mm-hmm. Dr. Angus Short, PhD in Dublin, Ireland. And he invented this device. You blow into it, it registers hydrogen gas levels, talks to your smartphone, and gives you a little graph. Oh, nice. Because microbes produce hydrogen gas, but you don't. And so you can use it to map out where in the GI tract microbes are. Because Alex, I, I was guilty only a few years ago. I thought this, this issue of 30 feet of overgrown stool microbes, it's called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, SIBO. Mm-hmm. I thought it was rare. But then I got a hold of this <laughs> and Angus Short said, this is only good for people with irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, who have FODMAPs intolerance. 
and he his his fiance now wife was put on a low FODMAPS diet for her IBS, and he saw how difficult it was. So he invents this device to help her. Well, I get a whole device. I called him up. I said, "Hey, Angus, that's not what this is." Yeah, you can do that. It's a device to map out where in the GI tract microbes are living and to tell you where the sources of all food intolerances. Well, I shouldn't say all, but most food intolerances. So the company's in the process of changing their instructions and literature. There's some regulatory issues slowing them down. But um, unfortunately, if you buy the device, the AIRE device, A-I-R-E, the instructions are not suited to what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. So I have seven pages of conversation and how to do this in the super gut book. Mm-hmm. Uh, now you don't have to buy this. It's 200 bucks, mm-hmm. uh, but you only have to buy it once. If you do, if you were to have your doctor test, he would do it in a lab or clinic. If he even knew what it was, which is unusual. Mm-hmm. So, and you might have to do it several times because you do it at baseline follow up to see if you eradicate the bacteria, uh, do it again for recurrences. So if you buy the device, you buy it once, use it over and over and over, and you can share with people in your family. So how, so let me ask you then uh, two questions. One, what is the ideal diet that we should be eating? What is the thing that works? And I know, I mean, there's obviously different beliefs and things like that in regards to meat and non-meat, vegetarian, non-vegetarian, all that stuff. That's fine. But what is the ideal scenario? What should we definitely be avoiding? Uh, And then, uh, and then also if we can explain uh, probiotics, prebiotics, postbiotics, all that stuff, and what we do to help our flora and our super gut. Yeah, so I have to break your vegetarian, vegan kind of conversation. So so what I do, Alex, is whenever in doubt or whenever in question, ask, how did humans do it uh, for the last three million years Mm -hmm. that got programmed into our genetic code? Mm -hmm. Right. So this is mostly in Africa because humans didn't migrate out of Africa. They did in several waves, but typically 30,000, 60,000 years ago. So most of the adaptations occurred while in Africa. So what did uh, what did they eat and what do the few remaining people who maintain that lifestyle, like the Maasai, the Hadza, the Malawi, as well as pockets of humans who still follow hunter gatherer lifestyles like the uh, uh, Yanomami in Brazil and the Matsas in Peru, the Mori in uh, New Zealand, uh, the natives of New Guinea. These people all eat the same way. They get up in the morning, grab a club spear or axe, kill something, typically open the abdomen, eat the stomach and intestines, often raw. That's a probiotic, by the way. Um, drag the carcass back to the camp, cook it, eat the brain, rich in such things as hyaluronic acid, eat the liver, tongue, heart, rich in collagen, um, eat the liver with vitamin D and some omega-3s, uh, then eat the meat, by the way. The meat is the least nutritious part of the animal. And then, of course, dig in the dirt for roots and tubers, gather berries, gather nuts, uh, go for fish and shellfish. So, um, you know, if we were starving, that's what we would do, too. Mm-hmm. Exactly. All right. So then, um, but in the modern world that we live in today, if we're not going to go club something, <laughs> what is something that, what is, you know, obviously we've talked about what we should avoid, all wheat products, all grain products, um, milks like oat milk and those kind of things as well. Uh, is there any other things that we really should kind of be avoiding? Dietary guidelines. Dietary guidelines have done more harm to the world because, you know, the U.S. kind of sets the pace for dietary guidelines. Once we do it, 
UK picks it up, Australia picks it up, New Zealand picks it up, and then uh, the rest of Europe and Asia picks and South America pick it up. And we broadcasted the message of cut your fat, cut your saturated fat based on the slimmest and most distorted of evidence. Right. And then some garbage science that came out over the last 20 years. Uh, there never was good support for that argument. And in fact, you can all go to Walmart. You can see the impact of, cut, of having following a low fat diet because a low fat diet is by necessity a high, high carb diet, including wheat and grains with gliadin derived opioid peptides that are appetite stimulants. And you get visceral fat, insulin resistance, type two diabetes, obesity, and all the diseases that follow hypertension, coronary disease, peripheral vascular disease, and dementia. So it is, Alex, it is a disaster of unprecedented proportions created by human blundering. And so, you know, we could wait for them to retract their advice, but they're not going to, we're, we're never going to hear this. Um, you know, we, we, we made a mistake, <laughs> used poor science and misinterpretation, and we take it all back that we're not even sure if grains are safe for human consumption. We'll never hear this. So right. I, I don't want to wait 30 years to see if they smarten up. So, you know, me and a lot of other people are doing this now and enjoying, I don't think it's a stretch to say magnificent health. So then uh, what can we do to increase our flora to help our internal microbiome to get healthier and to get, get you know, the flora back? One of the things I like to do is replace very specific lost key microbes. My favorite is Lactobacillus reuteri, R-E-U-T-E-R-I, named after the German microbiologist who discovered it in human breast milk in 1962, R. Gerhard Reuter, R-E-U-T-E-R, German. Well, back then, it was easy to find. He could find it in human breast milk, in people's stool, uh, in chipmunks and squirrels, monkeys and chickens, uh, as well as indigenous populations. In the studies where they actually looked at species, they found 100% of humans have lactobacillus reuteri, and most animals do. Well, now we've almost all lost it. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Because reuteri is very susceptible to common antibiotics like ampicillin. So you took ampicillin, say, for an upper respiratory infection, sinusitis, whatever, it wiped out all your reuteri. So what happens when you restore reuteri? Well, it takes up residence in the entire GI tract. And it sends a signal to your brain via the vagus nerve up through the chest, neck, and brain to release the hormone oxytocin. And oxytocin, you may recognize the hormone of love and empathy. And so people say, I got my rotary restored and uh, I like my spouse better. I like my kids better. I, I, I like my coworkers better. They, they annoy me less. I understand other people's points of view better. Isn't that mm. something? At a time, of course, I want other people's company more. And this of course occurring pre-pandemic at a time of record-setting social isolation, divorce, and suicide. So there's that social aspect, but the ladies love it. They knock your door down for Rotary because it increases dermal collagen dramatically and they lose their wrinkles. Guys regain lost muscle and strength that we lose with aging. Libido goes up. The erotic content of your dreams increases like when you were 19 years old. Your appetite is further suppressed. So getting rid of gliadin drive opioid peptides from wheat drops your appetite dramatically. This goes even further. 
Alex, you can walk by. You are in complete command of appetite and impulse. You're no longer tempted by garbage. Um, uh, bone density in ladies is preserved substantially. Uh, sleep is deeper. I'm a chronic insomniac for years, for decades. I'd sleep four or five hours fragmented sleep, terrible watching TV, reading books in the middle of the night, feeling like crap next day. I now sleep nine hours straight through deep sleep. And those of us who wear active graphic devices like Apple Watch or, or a ring or Fitbit, we'll see about a 20% lengthening of REM sleep, deep restorative phase of sleep that's helpful for maintaining mental health. In other words, Alex, so youthful muscle and strength, smoother skin, less wrinkles, better bone density, increased libido. I don't think it's a stretch to say what we're doing with Reuterite is turning the clock back 10 or 20 years. Now, Alex, that's one microbe. Wow. So where can you get those kind of microbes? Where can you get the probiotics, uh, flora, all that kind of stuff? So this one's very specific. One of the, the kind of annoying things we have to get into with microbes is you have to pay attention to strain. So just to illustrate, so you've got E. coli, I've got E. coli, your listeners have E. coli. But what if you ate lettuce contaminated with E. coli from cow manure? You could die of that E. coli. Same species, E. coli, different strains. So strain, it seems like a nitpicky thing, but it can literally mean life-death differences. So we have to pay attention to strain. Now, that said, I'm going to tell you that I started doing this initially by using two strains from a Swedish company in a commercial product called BioGaia Gastrus, G-A-S-T-R-U-S. These are two very specific strains, but they sell it to you as tablets made for infants. And so the counts of bacteria are so small because they're for babies. So I, I reasoned, this is back several years now, how do I increase the counts? Well, an easy way is make yogurt out of it, but not yogurt in a conventional sense. We're going to use dairy, but ferment it for a prolonged period. So we get huge numbers of bacteria, in this case, three to six hours. And we, we counted the, back, the bacteria. We got as high as 262 billion microbes per half cup serving. And so part of the magic here is to get big, big, big bacterial numbers. That's why I think we're part of the reason we're getting these huge effects. Now, I called the company the executives, and they, I, I told them all this stuff, which to me, I hope to your listeners is like, wow, smoother skin, muscle, sleep. I mean, libido, all that. And they're like, oh, 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 we don't really care about that. Which I, all they cared about was the baby stuff. I, I, I thought they were knuckleheads. Yeah, it's it's like, they, it's like Xerox back in the day. Like this computer stuff is ridiculous. Uh, we're going to yes, stay with, yes, we're going to exactly. stay with, we're going to stay with the copiers. That's the future. Excellent analogy. I'm glad you thought of. I'm going to use that. <laughs> <laughs> well, so they kind of discouraged me from doing anything. Well, since then, I've gotten seven other strains of, of Rotorite. I've made yogurt and some other people have done this. And this is just anecdote, though. It seems to recreate all the effects. Now we have, I have an animal trial, mouse trial. We're going to test different strains for its capacity to boost oxytocin. That's about to get underway. I have our first human clinical trial with Rotary lined up. We'll do that also. So we're going to get smarter, but I think what's going to happen is I'm going to say, I'm predicting now that uh, here's the best or among the best Rotary strains. But until that happens, I would just buy the BioGaia gastrus tablets and use those 
It's a hassle. You have to buy a bunch of tablets and crush them. Once you get started, you make future batches from a prior batch. You don't have to buy it. Just buy it once. This is true, by the way, for most fermentation projects. You don't have to keep on buying probiotics or microbes. Buy it once or get it once. Maybe a friend gives it to you. I have my entire neighborhood doing this yogurt, by the way. And so if somebody's new says, hey, Bill, can I have a... So I, yeah, I give them a little you know, Tupperware thing here. And they make it from that. They make future batches from that. Now, that's just one microbe, Alex. There are other microbes you can choose for other effects. If you want a reduction in knee pain from arthritis, let's make yogurt or other fermented foods, by the way, with bacillus coagulants. If you wanted um, a healthier child, healthier baby, dramatic increase in sleep, reduction in diaper changes and bowel movements, a reduced potential for type 1 diabetes, allergies, irritable bowel syndrome, and higher IQ, Let's get bifidobacter infantis into that child's system. In other words, you can achieve extraordinary things. Now, the downside of all this is all these wonderful little fermentation projects won't work if you have that overgrowth issue. So you got to first decide if you have that. One way is to test with the air device. Another way, you don't have to get this. Just look for what I call telltale signs. These are things like seeing fat droplets in the toilet because you're not digesting fats because the, ba- the bacteria in your duodenum are blocking digestive enzymes or conditions that are synonymous with SIBO, food intolerances. If you have a food intolerance, you have SIBO. <clears throat> if you have fibromyalgia, irritable bowel syndrome, restless leg syndrome, a neurodegenerative disorder, or an autoimmune disease, it's virtually guaranteed you have SIBO, or at least have a very high likelihood of SIBO, or at least major disruption of the composition of microbes in your colon, the the large bowel. So do you, so what you're saying is that you could treat certain kinds of diseases or conditions with with a a probiotic, depending on the strain? Not with a probiotic. So one of the problems with probiotics, Alex, is they're very haphazardly concocted with a lot of the new science not yet factored in. Okay. So, for instance, so microbes, just like people, you know, we don't live in isolation by ourselves, right? We live with uh, our partners, our families, our neighborhoods, our communities. Microbes are the same, and they collaborate in creating communities and, and metabolites. So there's only one uh, probiotic, by the way that has actually incorporated, these are called guild or consortium effects. So my friend, microbiologist, Dr. Raul Keno, has created a consortium of microbes. They, it's a commercial product called Sugar Shift. And once again, I have no relationship. They're not paying me. They're my friends now. Martha mm-hmm. Carlin and, and Raul Keno are my friends. And they create a product called Sugar Shift. And they call it Sugar Shift because they, this collection of collaborative microbes consume sugars in your GI tract thereby reduces your blood sugar dramatically in non, non-diabetic people, at least in preliminary evidence. And by the way, one of the reasons why they're doing this is they really think that um, uh, these, this collection of microbes takes sugars in your GI tract, converts it to another sugar called mannitol, which is not digestible by humans, but it is able to penetrate into the brain where it dissolves something called alpha-synuclein. That's the protein that gums up your brain of Parkinson's disease. And Martha's husband has Parkinson's disease. She's given it to him. Now, this is just anecdote. She says he converted from walking with a cane or walker to walking freely now. So, but these things are ta- so these things are taking out those 
it's a it it's can't be digested. So it's actually taking it and converting it or getting rid of it and getting it out of your system. <laughs> Breaking it down, denaturing yeah. it, dissolving it. Yeah. Now this has to be borne out in real clinical trials, which takes a long time. It's very expensive because it involves such things as MRIs and then sure. measures of uh, ambulatory ability and, and uh, psychometric testing and such. Uh, I'm, I'm, they're going to do that. Uh, but so far, just anecdotally and based on the experimental model, it looks like it works. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. But you, you can see what we're getting at here, Alex. We're talking about having incredibly powerful tools, blood sugar, Parkinson's disease, depression. Autoimmune, autoimmune disease. Autoimmune diseases. You know, depression's a biggie. You know, depression is not well served by the healthcare system. Never has uh, been. SSRIs are not very, right? I mean, a side effect of SSRIs is suicide. <laughs> but let me ask you a question. So, because uh, for the layman, when you think of microbiomes, you, you're thinking of probiotics. So, is there, is it, this is not, these are not probiotics. Because when you go to the supermarket and you go to Whole Foods and you go to the refrigerator and they have prebiotics, probiotics, postbiotics, that's not what you're talking about because there's strains and there's billions of strains and so on and so forth. Is that what you're talking about? That is what I'm talking about. But they're so haphazardly concocted that they typically don't have a lot of benefit to them. They do have some benefits. Sure. They increase mucus production in your intestinal tract. They do uh, suppress uh, proliferation of some of the unhealthy microbes. But there's a lot of problems with the current commercial uh, crop of uh, probiotics. There are numerous improvements that could be made, like what Raul and Martha did with the sugar shift, create a consortium or guild. That's one thing. The other thing is to include what are called keystone species, species important for other microbes, like plankton in the ocean. If you lost plankton, there's no whales or jellyfish, the filter feeders. So the same kind of principle applies to the human GI tract. There are keystone species that support other species. And most um, commercial probiotics have failed to include keystone species. The failure to specify strain. Another example besides E. coli would be lactobacillus rhamnosus GG strain. The GG strain has been shown to be quite effective in abbreviating diarrhea after an antibiotic. But other strains of rhamnosus don't do that. You buy a fancy probiotic, pay a lot of money for it, right? Has lactobacillus rhamnosus, no strain specified. It's probably not GG because it's cheaper to buy the non-GG. So there's a lot of problems with current. So of all the things you and I can do and your listeners can do for the microbiome, the last thing is a probiotic. It's the least important. It does help. Now that's going to change as manufacturers get smarter about what should go into a probiotic. The, the most important thing people could do is just bring back what your great grandmother did. And that is ferment your foods. Really? Fermented veggies. Yeah. Kefirs, yogurts, not yogurt, not the garbage in the store stuff we make ourselves with prolonged fermentation. And we choose the microbes we want for specific effects. Um, uh, it's very easy. It's virtually no cost. So I've got in my counter tomatoes, garlic, and uh, basil leaves all fermenting. Takes about three days. And there are some rules. You can't use chlorinated drinking water. You have to use filtered water because chlorine and fluoride kill microbes. You can't mm -hmm. use iodine salt. Iodine kills microbes. <laughs> have to keep it below the surface of the water so fungus doesn't grow from the air. But it, it, it's, it's delicious, and it, it, it's probably the most important thing you can do. Uh, 
There's a husband-wife team from Stanford, Justin Erica Sonnenberg. And only about four or five months ago, they, they published a very extensive, uh, very important paper that showed that uh, frequent consumption of fermented foods dramatically changed microbiome composition. Oddly, when you eat something that's fermented, let's say kimchi right. or fermented sauerkraut, where you're getting species like Pediococcus, Pediococcus pentasaceus, or Leuconostoc mesenteroides. So you're inoculating yourself with those microbes. They only take up temporary residence, but it's not quite clear how this happens. But the presence of those fermenting microbes allows other beneficial species to develop. It's not quite clear if they've been latent or you somehow are more receptive to them from the environment. Nobody really knows. But the Sonnenberg showed that frequent consumption of fermented foods opens the door to restoration. And you know what? You can feel it. You, if you start eating fermented foods, within a couple, three days, people typically say, I'm, I feel happy. I feel crystal clear. I have energy I didn't know I had. I'm sleeping and I'm having vivid childlike dreams, flying monsters showing up in English class, my underwear, all that kind of stuff we had as kids. So it really is transformative. And it's virtually free, Alex. And I love things that people can do on their own that are powerful, don't involve the healthcare system, don't involve the obstruction of the doctor, but you can do on your own. And a lot of, and everything that you were talking about is in your book, Super Gut, as far as like the different kinds of strains, how to build. I'm assuming there's a way to, you have a, a way to you create your own yogurt here, uh, recipes, little things like that to help you along the way. Mm hmm. And there are people who say, oh, no dairy for me. You can use other, other media. Uh, you can use coconut milk, canned coconut milk. It's a good medium. Uh, I've, I've fermented hummus. Hummus is very receptive. Salsa, veggies, kefirs, of course. There's all kinds of stuff you can ferment. I, one of my favorites, and this is not in the book because I just thought about this a few months ago, is what I call Saccharomyces, sparkling Saccharomyces boulardi cider. <laughs> or other juices. So it very, it's one of the easiest things you can ferment. Get a commercial product called Flora Store, F-O-O-R-A-S-T-O-R. It's, it's in Walgreens, Target, Meyer. It's like 15 bucks. Uh, take a capsule, empty it into any volume of cider is one of the easiest, apple cider. Just make sure. So you want the cider, not the juice. You want the such cloudy cider, mm -hmm. unfiltered with rich in pectin. Just make sure there's no preservatives like potassium sorbate. So empty your florist or capsule into any volume, quart, gallon, doesn't matter. Cap it very lightly. You know, you stir a little bit, cap it lightly, put it on your counter, let it sit there for 48 hours, maybe up to 72 hours. That microbe is a, is a fungus. It's a cousin of Saccharomyces cerevisiae that people use to make wine and beer. But Saccharomyces boulardii is uniquely adapted to the human uh, body. But in the cider, it takes the sugar and converts it to other things, including carbon dioxide. At about 24 hours, it's you'll see this thing bubbling out it's like a cauldron. <laughs> and it's fermenting. That's why I say cap it lightly, because if you cap it tightly, it'll, it'll pop explode. Right yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or at least the thing will pop off. <laughs> Give it 48 to 72 hours. What you're doing is the capsule as provided, I think has something like, I forget, 6.5 billion counts. We're increasing it to big counts. And you drink a quarter cup, something like that, half a cup. It does have some sugar left. 
and it is incredibly healing. Uh, if you take this during an antibiotic, uh, it will dramatically abbreviate diarrhea and the disruption of your microbiome because it's a fungus and it's not affected by antibiotics. So it's one of the best things you can do both to recover from an antibiotic and to prevent antibiotic uh, uh, associated disruption of your microbiome. Uh, those probiotics that you know that are very famous in the in the supermarkets and Walmart and Whole Foods, the one, the the yogurts that you buy, are those any good? Not a whole lot. Here, here's something to note. So let's take our my favorite microbe, Lactobacillus roterii. Mm-hmm. So bacteria don't have sexual reproduction, right? There's no mommy and daddy microbes. They just mm-hmm. double so-called asexual reproduction. So roteri doubles every three hours at 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And so um, uh, we ferment for 36 hours. That's 12 doublings. And that, that tells us how we get a 200 plus billion counts. And how do you stop that? How do you stop from them to continue? Just put it in the refrigerator. Got it. And the low 40s temperature of a refrigerator stops most doubling. Now, in the factory, you can imagine if, if, if you had a shoe factory and it took you five days to make a pair of shoes and your competitor could make a pair of shoes in three hours, who's going to make more money? Probably the guy who's faster, right? So same thing with yogurt. They don't want to wait 36 hours. They wait four hours. But you can imagine if microbes double only every typically one, two or three hours, four hours is nothing. And so I, I, to illustrate, I tell people, uh, I remind them about the, this uh, kid's riddle, which would you rather have a million dollars or a penny or a penny that doubles every day for 30 days? Kids always say, right, a million dollars. No, I'll take that penny any day of the week. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so five and a half million dollars. But if you look at the curve of money as it increases, the big uptick in money doesn't occur till about day 28, 27, 28. Same thing in doubling. Uh, if it doubles every three hours, say, uh, it doesn't really increase in numbers till about hour 33. And so if you're fermenting for four hours in a factory or some home fermenters for 12 hours, you really don't have anything. You're on the flat part of the curve. You want that, that sharp climbing part of the curve, which is hour 33 with, with roteri. With some species, it could be 24 hours. So you basically have like 16 cents. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. You get 16 cents. And so you haven't given and given it a time to compound yet mm-hmm. to get to where you want to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Davis, it's been uh, an absolute joy talking to you. Where can people find more, uh, more about what you do and the work that you're doing in books and things? So the Super Gut book, of course, which is everywhere, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, um, Amazon, of course. Uh, I have a, I consolidated all my websites. I had too many Facebook, all that stuff. I consolidate almost everything into drdavisinfinitehealth.com. Uh, and there, there's a, um, uh, a blog. There's also a membership um, uh, inner circle where I do this. In fact, I'm doing it tonight for a couple hours, me and typically 70 to 100 people. And they'll say things like, my first batch of Infantis yogurt didn't turn out. What's wrong? You mm-hmm. know, or uh, I, I added lactobacillus casei sherota to my rotori, and I slept 14 hours. I don't want to sleep 14 hours. So we talk about all the crazy things that can happen. 
<laughs> well, uh, Dr. Davis, thank you again so much for, for doing your work that you're doing and, and trying to educate people and giving them better health. So I appreciate you, my friend. Thank you again. Alex, thank you for what you're doing. Because I don't know if you know this, but anybody who wants to talk about health nowadays has been blacklisted from major media. So what you're doing and other yeah. podcasters and bloggers has been catapulted to being extremely critical for getting the word out of truth and health because the big pharma now rules the, the media world and we need to spread these kinds of ideas. So thank, thank you. you. I, I'll, I'll do what I can, my friend. I appreciate you. <laughs> I highly recommend that you read Dr. Davis's books, Wheat Belly, and his new one, Super Gut. They will change the way you look at food and hopefully help you feel a little bit better. I've started to remove wheat out of my diet, and all I can tell you is I feel a lot better. I'm losing weight, and my aches and pains seem to be going away. The inflammation seems to be going away. So hopefully this can help you as well. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, please head over to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash 047. And if you've only been listening to this over podcast and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, trust the journey. It is here to teach you. I'll talk to you soon.